I want to begin with a question. What are you afraid of? Someone asked me that when I was 18 in front of Philip Jensen and my sister and I lied. I was 18 at the time. I was partway through my second gap year trying my hand at Christian ministry under the supervision of Philip and others. And the person who asked me, one of the other trainees, had seen me do things that year that she found terrifying, but I had taken in my stride. And she wanted to know if I was afraid of anything. And I remember, as she asked the question, <coughs> the anxiety rising up in, within me. Because unknown to her, but entirely known to Philip, because he knows everything, the entire year, that entire second year, was motivated by fear and anxiety. Because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. You see, after finishing school, all I wanted to do was be a Christian minister of the gospel. And after one and a half years of trying my hand at Christian ministry, I had found that I was not ready to take the next step. And I was terrified. At this point, I was afraid of failure, afraid of success, afraid of entering into adulthood, afraid of perpetual childhood, afraid of being known, afraid of not being known. And most of all, I was afraid of God. Because this indecision, this fear, this lack of trust in God at this time was producing all sorts of foolishness and sinfulness within me. Pride, laziness, lust, and just a general lack of self-control and self-direction. And all of this umming and ahhing as I entered adulthood, all of this stifling fear and indecision was making me immoral and miserable. And this question exposed it all. What I needed to hear at that time was a sermon on chapters 11 and 12 of Ecclesiastes. If I had been willing at that time to listen to what the teacher says, I would have been set straight. I would have been prompted into action and given an eternal perspective on life that meant that I didn't have to fear the future. I didn't have to fear the opinions of others, but I only had to fear God and serve him. Colette finishes off his wise words by making three points in these chapters. And then the author of the book summarizes Colette's teaching in chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. The outline should come up on the screen, hopefully. But I'm hoping you'll be able to follow along in the Bibles as well. First, we're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, under the heading, Risk It for the Biscuit. Then, Enjoy Youth While It Lasts, chapter 11, verses 7 to 12, verse 8. Then, Remember Your Creator, from the same verses. And finally, the summary of it all, Fear God and keep his commandments. And again, our basic point as we go through, the thing that this will do for us 
is liberate us from fear. Liberate us from living for the meaningless things that Colette has described in this book. So that we can live a meaningful life under the fear of God in light of eternity. So let's dive in. Firstly, risk it for the biscuit. One of the major themes of the book as we've read through it is that life in this fallen world is unpredictable and that we are not in control of everything such that we can manage the outcomes and ensure positive futures for ourselves. The future is not in our hands. The future is in God's hands. We heard last week the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. And this has been a major theme. We are small, finite, God has eternity in his hands, but time and chance happen to us all. But what are we to do with that? Ought that to stifle us? To keep us afraid of the future? Well, the preacher says no. He reiterates that teaching in verse 2. Look at it. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. For you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. And again, verses 5 and 6. You do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb. You cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know what will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. You just don't know, is his point, what life is going to throw at you. But that mustn't stifle you into inactivity and fear. No, it's quite the opposite. It ought to spur you on to action. The knowledge that God is in control and not you ought to motivate you to give life a crack, to have a go. That's what he's talking about when he says, cast your bread upon the waters. This isn't kind of feed the ducks. This is throw something out there in the chaos of life. You never know what will come back. Sure, life is chaotic like the waters, but throw something out there. Just have a go and see what happens. You never know. And we have lots of proverbs like this in our modern um, vocab. You've got to be in it to win it. Uh, you've got to risk it for the biscuit. Have a go. <clears throat> so, do you like a girl? Well, if she's not your sister, if she's not married, and if she's a solid Christian, give it a crack. You never know. And if you don't, someone else might. And the examples could be multiplied, but we need to move on. The point is, life is always a risk. Life is out of our control. Life is in the hands of God, the maker of all things. This mustn't stifle us. In fact, it means we must make the most of every opportunity God gives us. Make the most of life. Get off the fence and have a go. Risk it for the biscuit. The most important decision in this regard is, of course, trusting Jesus with your life. And it's just possible that someone's listening here who hasn't trusted Jesus. They're sitting on the fence. And I would encourage you to take the plunge. I heard about a guy recently who became a Christian after sitting on the fence for years and years. 
And once he became a Christian, he told his minister that all of those years were like standing on the edge of a pool and refusing to jump in because you're scared of getting wet and cold, but everyone in the pool is saying, jump in, what are you waiting for? It's great in here. And when he finally jumped in, he told his minister that he felt so silly for having missed out on so much fun for so long and having wasted so much time, and for what? Just for fear of, of uncertainty. Coalette says, be bold in life and be wise. Recognize who is in control. Don't be controlled by your fears. Don't be controlled by your fears about the future. You can't control the future. Step out in faith. Risk it for the biscuit. Secondly, for goodness sake, he says, enjoy youth while it lasts, because it won't last for long. You know, Australia has, some, has one of the highest youth suicide rates in the world. And it's really hard to imagine the grief behind that stat. Suicide is bad enough, but it is worse when it's the young. Because these dear young people created in the image of God with their lives ahead of them, give it up. Youth, the Bible says, is the time for joy. You'll remember chapter 3 where there was a time for this and a time for that. Youth is the time for joy. When you're young, says Colette, every faculty of your body is still intact and it's functioning at its peak. And if you're not going to enjoy life now, you're not going to enjoy life when you're old and you're falling to pieces. He says, be happy, verse 9. Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart on whatever your eye sees. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Now that word meaningless, remember, it's like a puff of smoke. It's not carrying all of the meaningless of kind of existential crisis and all of that. It's just that it's brief. It's fleeting. He's saying youth and vigor. They're like your breath on a cold morning. You can't grab it and put it on your pocket to use later. You've got to use it now. So he says, don't be anxious. Cast off trouble from your body. It's a good body. This is the best body you're ever going to have in this life. It's only downhill from here. Make the most of it. <clears throat> but as you do, see what he says in verse 9. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, judgment is both good and bad, isn't it? If you make the most of your youth, if you use your body to enjoy God and enjoy life to the full, then in the judgment, God will smile and reward you. If you squander your life, however, if you serve sin with your body, at the judgment, God will frown and God will punish you. 
So he says, don't enjoy your youth in such a way that you forget that you are going to have to give an account before a holy God. Remember judgment day is coming and your choices matter to God and he will sift through them all and hold you accountable for them all. And that brings us to our third point, remember your creator. If there is a judgment day, Coalette says, remember your creator. We're at point three, chapter 12, verse one. Remember your creator when? In the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come. And the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. For make no mistake, there will come a day when you will find no pleasure in the days of trouble because your body will have failed you and your youth will have gone. You see, the Bible teaches that we are under the curse of God because of our sin. God, the giver of life, gave us life and we rebelled against him rejected his rule, and his response to our rebellion is death. Not death in the future, death now, and death in the future. Like cut flowers, we flourish for a little while, but then we begin to decay. And then we begin to really decay. And the poem in chapter 12 is an account of that decay. It's beautiful, but it speaks of a terrible, terrible truth. I won't go into the, into the details because I want to speak more about remembering God and fearing God and what that means. But here's a list of ailments that you should expect in your 70s and 80s and 90s. Verse 2, your wit dims, a dim wit and a cloudy mind. Verse 3, incontinence, poor posture. Fewer teeth, the grinders fall out. Bad eyes, everything grows dim. Verse 4, poor hearing. And yet, a disturbed sleep. Verse 5, fear of heights, fear of the streets, and a reduced libido. These are the undeniable signs of aging. And no amount of beauty cream can reverse it. You can fight against it until you're blue, but there's only so many facelifts that you can have before your face no longer looks like your face. It is a losing battle. This is the future that we will all face if we live long enough and it's not pretty. I want you to notice though that there is a lot to fear when you get older. When you're young, you think you have big decisions pressing in, and maybe you do, but wait for the kids. Wait for the mortgage and the financial planning, and then when you're old, for the specialists, and the frailty, and the fear. It only gets more frightening from here, friends. But the person who remembers God, remember we're talking about remembering God, that's the advice. At the front of this poem, remember the Lord. 
the person who remembers the Lord and lives and works to an audience of one and sees everything in light of their relationship to God has nothing to fear. My nan went to the optometrist one day. Her eyes failing, obviously. She's old. And she was asked to put her chin on the thing, whatever you put your chin on when you're testing, having your eyes tested. Ask Malcolm later. But, you know, that thing. <clears throat> and as quick as anything, she said, which, which one? At this stage, she was very fat. She had four of them. <clears throat> My point is that as an old woman, she had lost all of the beauty of her youth. She was a fat woman with a fat face, and her hair had thinned terribly, and she wasn't much to look at. But boy, oh boy, was she beautiful. And the beauty was in the eyes. She was a joy to be around. For there is a kind of joy, sorry, a kind of beauty that grows over time. And it's characterized by a fearlessness that produces gentleness and a quiet spirit. You can read about it in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Paul says, Your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of, of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. And you are her daughters, if you do what is right, and do not fear that which is frightening. Our culture is obsessed with outward appearance. But Sarah, along with every woman who puts their hope in God, who remembers God, adorns themselves with holiness, gentleness, quietness, courage, and submissiveness, and it is beautiful. As the body fails, the inner self is renewed, and this notice is of great worth in God's sight. Youth is fleeting. Under the curse of God, our bodies will decay as we edge ever closer to death. And then we will meet our maker and give an account of our lives. And what matters in the meantime is that we remember God. What matters is the depth of our relationship with God. And the kind of unfading beauty treatment, if I can put it like that, that produces all these wonderful things that pleases God. And his point at the beginning of the chapter is, it's best to start this beauty treatment when you're young. Start now. Remember God. Remember your maker in the days of your youth. Before all the stresses of life crowd in, Remember your creator while you are young. Furthermore, remember him, verse 6, before you die. 
Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Remember him when you are young and whatever you do, remember him when you die, before you die. Because after you die, you will return to God. And there are no second chances. As Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 puts it, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. Remember him now so that he will remember you then. And you'll hear the sweet words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Which leads us to the conclusion of the matter and our final point. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's down there in verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I can think of four kinds of people who may be listening to this today. This fear God command. Two of them are Christians covered by the blood of Jesus, so they do not have to fear the judgment. And two of them are not. I'll begin with, a lot, with the second two. The first group, well, they just don't fear God at all. You're sitting there and you live your life as if there is no judgment day as if you will not be held accountable for your actions. You don't give much thought to God, and you're not afraid of God at all. The second group doesn't believe in God like the first, but they fear the idea of God, because they don't want to be held accountable for their actions. And I found a guy called Professor Nagel, Thomas Nagel of New York University, who said this, and he represents this group. In speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions and religious institutions. Nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs with superstition. I'm talking about something much deeper, much deeper namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, having stro being strongly subject to this fear myself. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a universe like that. You see, there's a kind of atheist who actually doesn't want morality to exist, who doesn't want accountability. For if there isn't a God, there is no such thing as right and wrong, there is no such thing as sin, and my actions don't mean anything, and that is what they want. And if you belong to one of those groups, if you're an atheist who doesn't fear God or an atheist who does fear God, 
I need to warn you that one day you will be in terror of God. You will stand before him for judgment. You will stand before the God you didn't want to be there, the God you ignored, and you will give an account before him, and he will declare you guilty. And you will spend your days in a Christless eternity. And Jesus describes this as being cast out into utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of punishment, torment, where you will beg for God to kill you. But you will live on and on forever. Jesus says that the fire will never go out. Just as there is eternal life for those who trust Jesus, so too there is eternal death for those who reject him. And if you don't fear God now, you'll end up fearing God then. And if you don't fear God now, you'll end up fearing other things in this life too. You'll fear death. You'll fear the fact that this life and everything that you pursue is meaningless. You'll fear sickness, life's randomness, the future. You'll fear the opinions of other people and your emotional life will be up and down depending on what other people think of you. And Jesus says, leave all of that and come to me. Learn to fear me and you won't have to fear death, judgment, life in this world or the opinions of others. You won't have to fear anything if you fear me. But there's a third group, and this is the Christian, who knows God as the creator and the judge and the sovereign and holy God and who recognizes their sin and is keenly aware of their sin. But they fear God in such a way that they run away from God and avoid relationship with him. You're like Adam after he sinned. Do you remember in the garden? And God comes and says, where are you, Adam? And he says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You're terrified of God because you're guilty. And if that's you, well, let it drive you to the cross, but don't stay there, please. God doesn't want you to live in continual terror of him. That is an awful place to be. Yes, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of wisdom. God wants you to grow in the knowledge of his love, not just theoretically, but experientially as well. That yes, he is the creator, yes, he is holy, and yes, you are sinful, but that he loves you. And that's the fourth group. The fourth group approaches God with a childlike fear. That's the way the Puritans put it, with a childlike fear. It's like the fear of a child towards a parent who punishes them for wrongdoing, but who always loves them. It's a kind of fear of God that generates respect for him and obedience for him. Not running away from him, but submission to him and joy in him 
like an obedient child who loves and has a healthy fear for their parents. This is the kind of fear that God wants. Fear God and keep his commandments. This fear doesn't trifle with God. It knows all the things that group, two, group three know, that God is creator and judge and perfectly righteous. But it also knows that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him for you. This fear recognizes and rests in the forgiveness of sins and is based on trust in God's promises. As 1 John 5 puts it, perfect love casts out fear, for fear involves punishment. And all of that has been dealt with at the cross. Childlike fear listens to God and does what he says because we want to please him, because we love him. Fear God, he says, and keep his commandments, for this is the full duty of man. For God will bring every deed to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And friends, the fact that God brings us to judgment means that the final word of this book is not meaningless, meaningless. It is meaningful, meaningful, says the teacher. Everything is meaningful. For God is going to look at everything we do under the sun, and everything we do is going to echo into eternity. Jesus said to his disciples as they stepped out into the mission of the gospel in Matthew chapter 10, Beginning at verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And that's at the heart of what Koala is saying here. We can live boldly in this world because we fear God and we want to please him. That is the way to live a meaningful life. And it's my prayer that you will learn to fear God in this way, in this fourth way. That you'll fear God in a way that leads to obedience. If you live for what is seen and what is fleeting, you'll be afraid of all sorts of things. Your life will be meaningless and it will end in eternal terror before God. But if you live under the fear of God, if you entrust your life to him and step out in faith and take risks for him and remember him in the days of your youth and as you face your death, and always keep his commandments. Well, you won't be afraid of this life and you won't be afraid of the life to come because you'll know that God loves you, forgives you, and will remember you before his Father in heaven on that final day. And what you do in this life will really matter because it will echo into eternity. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us all to fear you and to love you by keeping your commandments. For we know that you will bring everything into judgment. And that what we do in this life really matters. That you will reward the good and condemn the bad. So we ask for this, for the sake of your, your dear Son, our Saviour, and for our good. Amen.